picked out just the right songs every Sunday and Wednesday. Just, it's just what I need. I know how she does it, though. It's with partnering with the Holy Spirit, but still, just what I needed tonight. Genesis chapter 9 tonight, our last chapter in dealing with Noah tonight. By the way, you'll hear this repeated Sunday morning before the message of Job. Worship is more than admiration of God. It is not just growing in admiration. Worship is being moved to action. Worship is taking action, not just admiring God in a greater way. That's going to come into play tonight, but I'm throwing that out there tonight for those of you that are here, those of you that are listening through live stream tonight, because you'll have a head start on Sunday. Genesis chapter 9 is a chapter dealing with what I'm calling the divine restart. God has dwindled down the human race to eight people, and now he's going to build it back up again. And so what we learn from that, even before we get into this chapter tonight, is obviously that God is the God of second chances, and a million more than that. And that sometimes God takes away but always with the purpose of building back up. We've seen that in the book of Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And if the Lord takes away, like he's even doing in Job's life, it's always with the intent to build back up again. God is a God of restart. He's a God of restoration. He did not take the human family down to eight people to leave it there. In fact, as we're going to see tonight, the human race populated the entire earth from that one family. God gave them marching orders, go, be fruitful, and multiply. The same thing he told Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1.28. So even before we get into Genesis 9 tonight, let's remember that. Be encouraged by the fact that if God is, has reduced you in some way, that it's only to build you back up even better later on down the road. And never forget, God is the God of the second chance. There's always chance with God. There's always restoration with God. There's always, as long as we have breath, hope to have a fresh start with God. That's not only a message that we need to see for ourselves, but we need to share with others. Because there's so many others out there today who are just sort of stuck in a rut. And they're just spinning. And they need to realize that they can have a divine restart. And they can have a divine reset in their life. If they just allow God to come in and begin to move and work in their life. I want to divide this chapter up into three sections. I want us to see the Lord who blesses, the Lord who reassures, and the Lord who desires to work through people like you and I, flawed as we are. Remember, the chapter divisions are not divinely inspired. It's all one flowing narrative. So last week, we talked about the fact that at the end of chapter 8, remember, God was responding to Noah's worship. And we talked about that. God responds to our worship. As God 
if you will, smell the offering of Noah on the first altar that was built in the Bible, God comes down and reveals to Noah and makes a promise to Noah that as long as the world exists, he will never again destroy it. And that he will set in motion a cycle of seasons that will last until the end of the world. Well, that response then continues on into chapter 9, where it says, then, as the response of God continues, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God wants to bless people. And God wants to bless his people. And we're going to talk a little bit tonight again about what does it mean to be blessed by God? When we are blessed by God or favored by God, it means he is entrusting to us that which is of greatest value and worth. That's what being blessed by God is. So in a sense, it is being given privileges by God, but privileges that carry a corresponding responsibility with God. It is God placing value on things and God showing us what he values rather than what the world values. It is showing us what is significant to God, what is important to God, therefore what should be significant and important to us. And you are going to see this throughout this chapter. That's what it means to be blessed of God. So being blessed of God doesn't necessarily mean an easy life or a life without trial. We would say that, I use this example a lot, I apologize for it, it's just one that always pops into my mind when I'm thinking of these principles, but we would say, oh, Joseph and Mary were blessed to be the parents of Jesus. Well, yeah, but was their life easy? Was the birth easy? Was all of that easy? No. No, they had a hard life, but they were blessed. Because they were entrusted by God to be the parents of the Savior of the world. But it wasn't easy. So we need to sort of rewire our thinking as Christians as what does it mean to be blessed? To be blessed by God is to be entrusted with what is of greatest value and worth. So notice here again, God is giving Noah and his sons, obviously their daughters, Noah's daughter-in-law, the responsibility to go out and begin to repopulate the earth. Down to eight people, big world, get out there and start having children and then encourage them to have children so we can get the entire face of the earth populated because as we're going to even see next week, God's plan was always that in heaven one day, there would be those worshiping him throughout eternity from every nation, every tribe, every kindred, every dialect, every culture will be represented in heaven. Well, in order to do that, Noah and them needed to follow through and begin to repopulate and spread out. So that was one responsibility. But notice verse 2, another responsibility Every living creature of the earth and every bird of the sky will be terrified of you. Everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, notice these next three words, are under your authority. God is literally placing in the hands of Noah and from human beings 
you know, onward, the responsibility of taking care and managing and stewarding creation. That's a big responsibility. And we haven't really done a good job of it. Which is why God's going to give us a second chance in the millennial kingdom and throughout eternity. See, that's the kind of blessing God, God says, I see the potential you all have to rule and reign and, and have dominion and, and have things placed in your hands. And God wants to place things into our hands. What is it that God has placed into your hands right now? Or what is it that God wants to place in your hands, but right now your hands are not open to receive it? Listen, I've been there. I understand that. I can look back on the time God wanted me to be a pastor and I wasn't ready to receive it. Obviously, I've told you the story about God wanted me to plant this church and I wasn't ready to receive it. So I'm not here tonight saying, oh, I've always been ready to receive what God was wanting to place into my hand. But I am saying this. We need to come around to it eventually. Because God's will is the best thing that you and I can embrace. But God wants to always place things into our hands. By the way, verse 2 also says something interesting, an interesting tidbit. That before the flood, there was a different relationship between the humans and the animal kingdom. Did you get that? And now in verse 2, it says, now the animals are going to be sort of fearful of you. That There's going to be this, you know, ooh, humans, we, you know, there's, a little bit of an animosity there that wasn't there pre-flood, you see. Something else that God is going to change after the flood than before. Remember before they were just vegetarians? Now in verse 3, God says, You may eat any moving thing that lives. As I've given you the green plants, I now give you everything for food. So now they can be meatitarians as well as vegetarians. God gives them permission to eat anything. God is going to come up with a restriction, a prohibition, but the provision of God far outweighs the prohibition, just like it did in the Garden of Eden. When God said to Adam and Eve, I'll give you the fruit from every tree in the garden, just one. Don't eat from that tree. And God's basically saying here, everything that you see, You've got my blessing to eat it. But then in verse 4, he says, but you must not eat meat with its life. That is its blood. For your lifeblood, I will surely exact punishment. From every living creature, I will exact punishment. From each person, I will exact punishment for the life of the individual since the man was his relative. We'll talk more about that. But God now is saying, look, I'm giving you responsibility to manage and steward creation. And as you step off of this ark, you need to begin to repopulate the earth, and you need to begin to manage the resources that the earth has, including the animal kingdom. And I'll give you permission now to eat everything except the blood, because I want to establish something post-flood that you need to pass on to your children and to your children's children and to all the population. And that is that there is significance in the blood. That when blood is poured out, life is poured out because life is connected to blood. 
If you want some verses to support this, I'll just give you a couple to look up later. Leviticus 17, verses 11 and 14. The significance of blood. God wanted to establish the significance of blood for a couple of reasons. One, that was going to establish a foundation for the sacrificial system of which Jesus Christ, the Son of God, one day would fulfill. It had everything to do with tying our atonement and our redemption to blood and to life sacrifice, to setting that apart as sacred, as holy, as special. But God is also wanting post-flood to establish the value of life and to say life is precious. It is a gift. It is something that should be valued. And therefore, life should not be taken lightly, even the life of an animal. In other words, looking ahead, even into the sacrificial system, every time a Jewish person sacrificed an animal for their sin on the altar by the priest, it should remind them how serious sin is that an animal had to give up its life for this sacrifice. Now, obviously, that would all be swallowed up in the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You get the significance of blood then throughout the Bible. What established the first Passover? In Egypt, it was put blood on the doorpost and lentils of your house. Blood set apart the altar in the tabernacle. Blood set apart the priesthood in the Old Testament. It was blood that sealed the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in the Bible. It is blood, according to the Apostle Paul, that gives us peace with God, redemption with God, forgiveness with God, and provides access into the very presence of God. It's all by the blood. And for us, the blood of Jesus Christ. So here, God is saying to Noah, don't eat blood. Blood signifies life. And you are restricted from eating blood. You need to set that apart and make that significant for a couple reasons. One, it will tie to redemption and atonement. And secondly, it shows the value that God places on life. By the way, the value and significance God places on every life. Because if you go over to verse 19, for just a moment, I know I'm skipping ahead. It says, these were the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, verse 18. And from them, the whole earth was populated. All the human race, Descended from one family, therefore all of mankind is of great value and significance to God, no matter where they live, no matter what color of their skin, no matter what nation they live in, no matter what culture they come from, because everybody can be traced back to one family, Noah's family. That's why I just... 
I, I do not understand anyone that claims to be a Bible-believing Christian who has any kind of race, racist beliefs, thinking that one skin color is more valuable than another, one type of person, one culture is more valuable than another. Everybody came from the same family. Everybody. And so God is establishing how valuable life is. Remember, before the flood, one of the reasons why God said, I've got to start over again is because the earth was so violent, so much murder. I mean, we even see... You know, early on, Cain killed his own brother Abel. The taking of life, even early on, life was not viewed as valuable. And here we are again in our day where people either take their own life or take other people's lives, and the taking of life is no big deal. We do not value the life that God gave us. And that goes all the way back to what God is saying here. And notice, this is all part of the blessing of God. God is entrusting Noah and his family to lay down these principles of repopulating the earth and managing creation and making sure that people understand, listen, God gave us everything to eat, except let's not go there with blood because that signifies life. And life is significant and valuable, even the life of animals. So let's not take them even lightly. Because then God even says this. He says in verse 5, I'm going to exact punishment for the life of the individual since the man was his relative. Interesting. Basically, God is saying, because you all as human beings come from the same family, Everybody, in a sense, is literally your brother. That's literally what it means in the Hebrew. Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah. Good Samaritan story. How did it get started? Someone asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? What did Jesus say? Whoever's in need, that's who your neighbor is. Because we're really all interrelated, the way we treat each other is significant. And that we should view everybody as we're all in this together. There's a, there's a unified tie that ties all of us together as human beings because we all came from the family of Noah. And then God gives Noah this responsibility. Whoever sheds blood, verse 6, by other humans must his blood be shed. For in God's image, God has made humankind. God gave man the responsibility to exact punishment for the taking of life. Again, all part of the blessing of God. Verse 7, but as for you, be fruitful, grow, multiply, increase, abound abundantly on the earth, and increase on it. The blessing of God. God wants to bless us. And blessing us he does by entrusting to us and placing into our hands things of greatest value and worth. What has God placed into our hands right now that is of great worth and value 
What is it that God may want to be placing into our hands that we are not yet ready to receive? That's what I want us to take out of the first six verses, verse, or first seven verses. Verse eight begins, God is a God of reassurance, which reminds us God understands we need to be reassured. We need reaffirmation. We, we need to be, you know, encouraged. <laughs> that even though God could say something once and it would be good because we know God is faithful and we sang about it tonight and we know God is true to his word and keeps his promises, yet God understands the human psyche, if you will, and the frailty of human beings and understands that, that we need to be reassured even by him, even though he's said it and that should be enough. And that's what you see in verses 8 through 17. God is basically saying, I'm going to bend over backwards, Noah, to reassure you and from everybody forward that I will remember what I promised. Notice what God said to Noah and his sons. Look, basically, behold, pay attention. I am now getting ready to set in place or confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, including the birds and domestic animals, every living creature of the earth with you, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature of the earth. I confirm my covenant with you. Never again. Literally, God is saying, in no way will all living things be wiped out by the waters of a flood. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. God said, that's it. I'm making that covenant with you. Okay? And then God says this. That should have been enough, right? But God understands we need reassurance. So God said, this is the guarantee, a sign to reassure of the covenant I'm making with you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all subsequent generations. I will place my rainbow in the clouds and it will become a guarantee, a reassurance, an encouragement between me and the earth. By the way, the word that God uses here for rainbow is the Hebrew word keset. Not cassette as in the ones we used to play in our car. It's spelled Q-E-S-E-T, pronounced cassette. It is a battle bow. It was a bow used in battle. And God then is basically saying, I am hanging up my battle bow. I will not fight you that way again. That's why you see the rainbow is this way. It's as if the bow is being hung up by God in the sky. He says, verse 14, whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, then I will remember my covenant with you. Notice, many people think, oh, the rainbow is there to remind us that God is not going to destroy the world by a flood again. No. God said, I'm putting that there so that when you see it, you know I'm seeing it and I'm saying, I won't do it again. In a sense, God is saying, that's a reminder between you and me, but it's not you seeing it. So it's like, oh yeah, no, it's you know I'm seeing it. Is what, it's a little bit different, right? Never again will the waters become a flood and destroy all living things. When the rainbow is in the clouds, verse 16, notice. I will see it. I will notice it and remember the perpetual covenant between God and all living creatures of all kinds that are on the earth. 
I will be mindful of it continually when I see it. And I'm the one that put it there. See, God is a God of reassurance. So God said to Noah, verse 17, this is what? The sign or the covenant or the guarantee of the covenant that I am setting in place between me and all living things that are on the earth. Three times in this short passage, God says, I'm going to give you a guarantee. I'm going to give you a guarantee. I'm going to give you a reassurance. I'm going to set the rainbow. Because God is a God who is continually reassuring us. Even his own people. Why is that important for us today? Because you may be here tonight and may be feeling bad that you need reassurance right now in your life. Don't. God understands we need reassurance. We all need reassurance. And God may want to be bringing reassurance into your life tonight or this week or this month. Maybe there's something that you're, you know, it's like, I believe God, help my unbelief. Maybe there's an area right now that you're struggling to trust God or believe God in and God's saying, let me give you some promises to reassure you or let me give you a worship song to reassure you and encourage you or let me bring a friend along and, and let me have their words reassure you. Let me use all these things in your life to try to reassure you that I'm with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm a person of my word. You can trust me. God has a myriad of ways, an endless, innumerable amount of ways and methods that he can reassure us, just like he did with the rainbow in the sky. But I'm telling you, God wants to reassure us. And I believe that if you and I are open to it and, and sensitive to the Lord, God will reassure us every day. Because if we're praying every day, if we're reading his word every day, if we're worshiping him every day, if we're spending time with him every day, there's going to be moments where God, as part of that time, reassures us. And the reason I can speak so confidently about that is because I know God does that with me. Trust me, I need his reassurance in my life every day. There's many days where I go to God, are you sure, God? You sure that's what you want me to do? You sure that's what you want me to preach on? You sure that's the series you want me to do? You, you sure you want me to have that meeting with that person? You sure you want me to, to make that appointment with that person and say those? You sure, God? God has to reassure me. It's okay. God understands we need reassurance, and he will give you that reassurance. Be open to God's reassurance in your life. And then the final passage. God wants to work through people, flawed people people like you and I, to reach the world and be a blessing. He blesses us so that we can bless others. This is a crazy sort of end to the chapter of Noah's life, if you will. And there's so many rabbit trails we could go down, but I'm going to try to just stay on the trail that I believe God wanted me to share with you tonight. But let's, let's read it. First of all, verse 18, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Let's stop there first. They came out of the ark. That means that God kept his promise to protect and preserve Noah and his family through the flood. God is faithful. God can be trusted. They didn't just get into the ark. There was a day they came out of the ark. They may have thought at some point they'll never get off the ark, but they did. 
Maybe there's times in your life where you think, I'm never going to get through this. They came out. They came out. God was true to his promise. And again, verse 19, these were the sons of Noah. From them, the whole earth was populated. Noah became a farmer after the flood, a man of the soil. And he began to plant a vineyard. And when he drank some of the wine, he got drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Noah was overserved and underdressed. Now, here's the deal. As Moses is writing this way down the line, Moses does not feel impressed by the Spirit of the Lord to pile on to Noah. First of all, if you read this, it's very possible that Noah did not know, post-flood, about fermentation and that drinking this stuff would inebriate him like it did. Maybe he did. But God, obviously, at least, is not in this passage coming down on Noah for that. He also does not come down on Noah because what happens to Noah is in the privacy of his own tent. Noah's not out there flaunting his drunkenness and his nakedness. His son comes in and sees him. So let's move on. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers who were outside. And by the way, I think of a hint of what went on here and why Ham did something wrong is because the word told in the Hebrew language means to tell with glee and delight. It's like Ham took pleasure in his father's bad state and bad condition. In a sense, it was one of Noah's sons disrespecting his father and sort of making fun of him and then going and telling his two brothers to join him because his two brothers treat their father very differently. In spite of what happened to Noah being overserved and underdressed, they show kindness and they show respect to their father by literally backing into his tent and throwing a blanket on his nakedness so that they didn't see him. Which is what verse 23 says. Their faces turned the other way. Now, we don't know how Noah knew all this took place if he was in such a drunken state. Did God reveal this to him? Did something further happen? We don't know. Again, there's so many rabbit trails that people go down this chapter, and I just feel like, you know, if the text doesn't clearly say it, then we've got to be careful to be dogmatic about it. We don't know. There's just not enough information to know what happened. We've got to stick, though, to what we do know. What we do know is this. When Noah awoke, verse 24, from his drunken stupor, and he learned what his youngest son had done to him, he began to speak prophetically. And he pronounces a curse upon Canaan, one of the sons of Ham. Not Ham, but one of the sons of Ham. Why does he do this? Because he's speaking prophetically. He's speaking only because God has revealed this to him. You think, wow. 
Noah's waking up from a drunken stupor and he's able to speak prophetically? Yeah. Because God still uses even flawed people. And listen, I don't know how much Noah failed in the eyes of the Lord here, but if he failed at all, he failed falling forward. And that's what I want us to understand tonight. Is if we fail with God, we can fail falling forward. Instead of allowing it to define us, instead of allowing whatever failure or lapse to keep us down or to allow the enemy to hang it over our head and for us to grovel in it and be shamed by it and feel bad about it, just receive the forgiveness that God gives you and keep on moving on. And that's what Noah did. Because the gifts and calling of God, the Bible says, are without repentance. God doesn't take the gifts and calling away that he gives us. Just because we fail every once in a while and we lapse. Listen, Noah was in a special category with God. If you read the book of Ezekiel, there's this interesting passage in the book of Ezekiel where the nation of Israel is really at a low point spiritually. And God basically says to the people of Israel through the prophet Ezekiel, he says, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in your midst right now, it wouldn't be enough to save you. Now think about that. Out of all the people that God could have chosen, and the reason I bring that up tonight is because we're also talking about Job on Sunday, that God literally pulls out Noah, Daniel, and Job, and he mentions them twice in the book of Ezekiel, and says, even if those three men were still alive, it wouldn't be enough to save you right now. That's how much God thought of those three men. And yet, he's still a man. He's still flawed. But let's face it, God used Noah to bless the world. Because we all wouldn't be here if it wouldn't be for Noah. And Noah wouldn't have built that ark and wouldn't have gotten on that ark and wouldn't have survived with his family on that ark. Because we all came from Noah's family. God blessed Noah so Noah could be a blessing to others. And even when we're flawed and we fail, God still uses flawed people because we're all flawed. And we all will fail. And I want all of us to understand that tonight. Your pastor is a flawed human being, and I fail God continually. That does not stop God in his grace from using me. Do not let your failings and your flaws keep you from being used by God, because God, if he was waiting for perfect people, he'd be waiting for all of eternity, because none of us are perfect. God cannot look for perfect people right now to use. He simply uses for those who will make themselves available to him. And so Noah speaks prophetically about the future of Canaan. And that could only come from God revealing that to him. You see, the Canaanites would be a thorn in Israel's side throughout their generations. And yet this people, this idolatrous, wicked people, came from one of the sons of Noah an ancestor, and Noah could see that. But then notice, 
what Noah also says in verse 26. He also said, the worthy of praise is the Lord, the God of Shem. Another son who would build a godly legacy and a godly line. And why is that? Because they are praising the Lord, their God. The question I had to write down here is, is the Lord my God? The Lord was their God. And why that's significant in the wording is because God is saying it that way to say, am I your object of worship? To Shem and his family, God, the Lord, was their primary object of greatest worship. Worthy of praise is the Lord, the God of Shem. Is God our object of worship? Is the Lord our God? By the way, the phrase worthy of praise or blessed be in some translations, literally in the Hebrew means to adore on bended knee. Same thing that the wise men and the shepherds did when they came to pay their respects to Jesus, either as a baby or as a young boy. To adore on bended knee. That's really, again, worship isn't just admiration Worship is also moving us to action. And in that action of adoring God on bended knee, there's so much that's expressed there. There's submission. There's surrender. There's the acknowledgement of I'm before one who's much greater than myself. I mean, worship, which is where we get our word worship from. It's all expressed there. It's like I'm acknowledging that the one I'm before is superior to me. He's Lord, he's Master, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So here in Genesis 9, as we wrap up at least the part of Genesis that deals with Noah, we see tonight that the Lord is a Lord who wants to bless his people, the Lord is the Lord who wants to reassure his people, and the Lord is the Lord who wants to work through his people, even flawed people, to be a blessing to others. And the Lord is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight for, Lord, just the tremendous time of worship that we had tonight, God. Lord, we sing to honor you. We pause in our day at the end of a Wednesday to honor you. We want to give you the respect and reverence and honor that you are due. We want you to know that you're of great value and worth to us. In fact, you're of greatest value and worth to us. There is no one or nothing that is more valuable, more worthy than you, God. And yet, Lord, we struggle sometimes to keep you in your proper place in our life. Other things of the world and whatever can pull us away or distract us, God. And so we 
thank you for these times where we can be sort of refocused and reset back to you. And we pray tonight, God, that tonight in your house and maybe in homes that are watching there tonight, that there's been a moving of God in our midst. That, God, you've been speaking to your people and moving in your people and working in your people tonight to, to draw us closer to you, Lord, and to make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. God, you're a, you're a great God. You're beyond our, our comprehension, and yet you're so good. You want to bless us. You keep reassuring us and making us promises because you're so faithful. And God, you want to use us. You don't have to use any of us. You could do it all by yourself and do it much better than us, God. But you love to use people, even flawed people like us, God, to touch other people and to bless other people. And so, God, we thank you for that. We thank you, God, for giving us purpose in this life and in the life to come. And, Lord, that we can just know that, Lord, we don't have to be perfect to be used by you. And we, even if we fail you, we can fail falling forward, God, and we can be like Noah, and we can just come up out of our laps or out of our failure, and we can just keep on trucking for you, God. We thank you for that. May we receive whatever forgiveness we need tonight, God, as we confess our sins before you, God, and move forward, God knowing that you love us with an everlasting love. And we thank you for that, God. May we rest in that love tonight, God. May we wake up in that love tonight, God. And may we live throughout the day tomorrow in that love, God, that you have for us tonight and forevermore. Take us home. And for those that are already home tonight, God, keep them, Lord, in your hand. We pray these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. We'll see you next week.